There. Welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. For those who gave, those who donated things, those who came out and worked, we really appreciate it. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 30. We're going to finish up 1 Samuel next week. It only took two years. <clears throat> Father, I echo all the prayers we've been prayed this morning, and uh, do ask, Lord, to take these lips of clay and do something with them, Lord, for your glory. Touch every heart in here, Father, and draw us closer to yourself. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Unless you live in a bubble, there will come a time in every life when you are faced with a crisis. Max Lucado writes, How do you handle yours? When hope takes the last train and joy is nothing but the name of the girl down the street. When you're tired of trying, tired of forgiving, tired of hard weeks of hard-headed people, how do you manage your dark days? With a bottle of pills or a tumbler of scotch? With an hour at the bar, a day at the spa, or a week at the coast? Many opt for such treatments, so many, in fact, that we assume they re-energize the sad life. But do they? No one denies they help for a little while, but over the long haul, they numb the pain, but do they remove it? We may fall headlong into bars and benches and beds. Like David, we crash into Gath, only to find that Gath has no solution. Welcome back to our study in 1 Samuel. This morning, David is going to show us the correct way to handle a crisis. Look at verse 1, or verse 1. Let's go verse 7. Then David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Please bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this band? Shall I overtake them? And he said to him, Pursue, for you will surely overtake them, and you will surely rescue all. Verses 7 and 8 are probably best understood as an account of how David has strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Whereas Saul's despair at God's silence towards him led him to seek the medium of Endor, David sought God's voice. But please keep in mind, David is coming back from a 16-month backslide. And yet the Lord is so gracious to meet with him immediately upon his return. You would think the Lord would say, Well, what have we here? What's that voice I hear now? Haven't heard from you in 16 months. Hello, my name is God. It's nice to meet you again. 
You know, in my heart, I can be so petty and hard with people I don't think are trying hard enough in the Christian life. And I'm, I'm thankful the Lord is nothing like that. So we see that after David encourages himself in the Lord, David now inquires of the Lord. What do you want me to do, Lord? What does God do? The Lord answered him quickly and directly. And God will do the same with you. It doesn't take as much as you might think. Satan will say to us, so you want to hear from the Lord? That's going to require three hours of constant prayer, three days of fasting, and three days of getting away. You've only got 30 minutes? God's not going to hear you. Ten minutes? Forget about it. Three minutes? You've got to be kidding. God's not going to give you a direction in a three-minute prayer. Well, I challenge that. Ask Peter. He was on the Sea of Galilee. He had been walking on the water, but now he finds himself suddenly sinking. He didn't pray for three days, three months, three hours, or even three minutes. He prayed just three words. Lord, save me. And the Lord grabbed him by the hand and pulled him up out of the water. That, by the way, is the shortest prayer in the entire Bible, and it's a great one. It has the Lord on one end, me on the other, and salvation sandwiched in between. Alan Redpath writes, Immediately when David touched rock bottom, he turned to God. At the very first uplifting of that tear-stained face, the very first moment the Lord looked down and saw his broken-hearted child weeping until he could weep no more, then heaven answered with an immediate word of power and victory and sent him forth to conquer. That moment became for David the gateway into victory, the stepping stone into blessing, and the beginning of the accomplishment of God's purpose for his life. That is exactly the place that God wants to bring us to this morning. But this is simply an Old Testament illustration of a New Testament principle. Do we really desire that God would bring us into victory and blessing this day? In the moment that we stand with a broken heart amid the ruins of our self-centered life, acknowledging the futility of fighting against God, and when we turn our eyes upon Jesus and lift your tear-stained face to Christ, at that moment, He will not only lift us up, but He will bring us victory and send us forth to conquer whatever enemies we have. But nobody says that with any authenticity until it is spoken with a sob before the throne of God. Verse 9. So David went, he and the 600 men who were with him, and came to the brook Bezor, where those left behind remained. But David pursued, he and 400 men, for 200 men who were too exhausted to cross the brook Bezor, remained behind. Now they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David and gave him bread and he ate and they provided him water to drink. They gave him a piece of fig cake and two clusters of raisins and he ate. Then his spirit revived for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. Now the brook Bezor is a few miles south of Ziklag and David's 600 men had just completed a 60 mile march at a cracking pace. And because of that, some were simply too tired and too exhausted 
to press on with this presumably even faster march into the desert. So they stayed at the brook with a useful task of which we will learn of shortly. Now, following David's prayer, we see him do something. We see him pursue. Now, many times people sit back and say, Lord, if you want good things to come my way, bring them to me. The Lord, however, would answer, well, take a step of faith and I'll be with you. I'll fight with you, but I want you to be engaged with me. I don't want you to be passive because I want to prepare you for ministry. You know, if Peter would have stayed in the boat, he would never have had the experience of walking on the water. Jesus told him to come, but Peter had to take that first step. Now, did he lose faith and sink? Well, yes, he did. But before we berate him too much for his lack of faith, it would be good to remember that the water walking club only has two members in it, Jesus and Peter. Now, we have to be obedient to what the Lord tells us, and then we will receive further direction from him. In the Christian life, it's often do what you know, and then you will know what to do. So they find a starving, sick Egyptian in a field, which I guess is something you normally don't find in a field. Just one more reason to stay indoors. And they give him some food and water. They also give him two clusters of raisins to raise his sugar level. They were the Old Testament version of Twinkies. Verse 13, please. David said to him, To whom do you belong and where are you from? And he said, I'm a young man of Egypt, a servant of an Amalekite. And my master left me behind when I fell sick three days ago. We made a raid on the Negev of the Cherethites and on that which belongs to Judah and on the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you bring me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will bring you down to this band. Now, it would have been very easy for them in the rush to save their families to pass up one sick Egyptian. But I think David is now broken. Perhaps he sees something of himself in this man, and he is therefore moved with compassion. Let me give you a sermon within a sermon. Can God use sickness to bring about something good? Well, it was true in the life of the Apostle Paul. This is Galatians 4.13. But you know that it was because of a body illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. That tells me the reason why Paul stopped and preached was because he was sick, and God used it for the conversion of many people. Now, poor Paul obviously hadn't read any of the best-selling books telling you that if you're a true Christian, you should never get sick. Don't get me started on that. Now, the mention of the Negev of Caleb is also particularly telling. Now, Nabal was the former husband of David's wife, Abigail, and he was a Calebite. Now, if you remember a few weeks ago, David very nearly attacked the Calebite Nabal and his men, but had been restrained by Nabal's wife, Abigail. But notice, the Amalekites did what David had not done. Among the very people where David had avoided blood guilt, the Amalekites had incurred it. You know what that teaches me this morning? Without the help and the protection of the Lord, we are capable of doing anything that the worst of sinners are capable of doing.
Now, did you notice in verse 12, the Egyptian tells them he was part of the group that burned Ziklag with fire. He doesn't realize he is talking about the hometown of the men who have just saved him. Have you ever said anything stupid like that? Well, me neither, but other churches are full of people like that. But anyway, the Egyptian promises to take them to those responsible. God has just provided them a human compass. He tells them, just follow me and walk like an Egyptian. Okay, I now know who grew up in the 80s. Verse 16, please. When he had brought him down, behold, they were spread over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. David slaughtered them from the twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped, except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. So David recovered all the Amalekites had taken and rescued his two wives. But nothing of theirs was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that they had taken for themselves. David brought it all back. So David had captured all the sheep and the cattle, which the people drove ahead of the other livestock. And they said, this is David's spoil. So they come upon these guys, and they're having the Amalekite version of the Mardi Gras. Now, there's probably been a thousand sermons on this preaching about the evils of drinking and dancing. Look, most of us don't need to dance. Not for any moral reasons, just for the sake of the arts. Most of us have honky rhythm. We can't even clap on time during worship service. Look around next time. So David arrives with 400 of his men. The enemy, however, was completely vulnerable at this time. It says they were spread abroad over all of the land. In other words, they were out of control and with no discipline, gorging themselves on food and filling themselves with drink and wildly celebrating their booty. In their drunken state, all but 400 of them are slaughtered. And please note that David recovered all that the Amalekites carried away. Not some, not a lot, not a good percentage but all. This is the Lord's will for you and his heart for me. He wants us to recover all that the enemy has ripped off by our sin and our flesh. Let me ask you this morning, what have you allowed Satan to steal from you? Now, he'll settle for the small stuff at first because we're more likely to let the little things go. But he will never be satisfied with just that. His ultimate aim is to take your passion to serve Christ and your love for other people, your time in the Word, your thirst for holiness, your desire for more of God, your excitement about worship, or even the joy of fellowship. Satan will take whatever you let him steal. Incidentally, where else do we read about a man who goes out and fights a battle to recover his stolen family. It's Genesis 14, where Abraham brings back Lot and all the pillage that had been taken from Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, there was one other who looked down upon a world taken by captive and captivated by sin, and he comes down, 
gives his life on a cross and redeems the world by taking captivity captive. So we have the trio of David, Abraham, and Jesus in the Bible who each saved their families. It's interesting that if you look at Matthew 1.1, you read these words. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verse 21, please. When David came to the 200 men who were too exhausted to follow David, who had also been left at the brook Bezor, and they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him, then David approached the people and greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless men among those who went with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except to every man his wife and his children, that they may lead them away and depart. Then David said, You must not do so, my brothers. With what the Lord has given us, who has kept us and delivered into our hand the band that came against us, and who will listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down to the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. So it has been from that day forth that he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. That phrase in verse 21, too exhausted, occurs only in this chapter and nowhere else in the entire Bible. The Hebrew word for exhausted there was related to a word for a dead carcass. These men were so tired and so weak, today we would say that they were dead tired. Now, these men weren't cowards or lazy. They were just too exhausted to go on. And by the way, it's something we should always remember. All Christians are in God's army, but some people are just a little stronger than others. It's up to those of you who are stronger to help bear the burdens of those who are weaker. Now, when they get back to Bezor, there are the other 200 men fully recovered and waiting to greet them. Now, naturally enough, they're pleased to have their families back and to hear about the victory of their Malachites and especially all the plunder that has been brought back. But then some of David's men stepped forward and objected the idea that these weaklings should share in the plunder. These men are described as wicked and worthless men. They're corrupt and evil because their attitude is basically self-centered. They think that they've done all the work, so they should get all the rewards. They're economic rationalists. Their view of life is totally works-based. They must have sounded rather like the laborers in a parable that Jesus told. They had worked long and hard and found themselves paid the same amount as the workers who had worked nearly not at all. Remember what they said? These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. That's not fair. That's right. Grace isn't about fairness. And since the booty had not been earned but was given as a gift from God, none had a greater claim to it than the other. David says, all shall share and share alike. That's the grace of God. When known, it demands a radical equity. So they should be happy to share with their weakling brothers. Instead, they are publicly humiliating these 200 men. They are being shamed and openly shamed in front of their wives and their children for legitimate physical limitations. 
They already must have felt bad enough. And now they have this put on top of them. But the battle couldn't have been won without the men that have been left behind. But we are often prone to judge others about their service, aren't we? Reminds me of Martha in the New Testament. Remember the day she had Jesus and the disciples over for lunch? Martha looks around for Mary to help her in the kitchen, but she is sitting at the feet of Jesus in fellowship. What does Martha say? In essence, she complains. Jesus, I'm doing everything. Tell Mary to help me. What does Jesus say to this? Martha, Martha, shut up. That's the Living Bible. That may not be in your translation, but... Jesus tells her she's worried about stuff that doesn't ultimately matter. What am I getting at? The Bible teaches us that even though some people may not be on the front line swinging a sword, those who work unseen in the background also have a part in the victory and the reward. You see, in warfare, if you can cut off the supply lines, you've done a great deal to win the war because a starving army, regardless of its strength, won't last very long the same way in the church. You may never teach a class or go on a missions trip. The only thing that matters is being obedient to whatever God has called you to do. Maybe your ministry is to pray for the church or to give sacrificially from your finances. Or maybe God has called you to open your home in hospitality. The point is we all have different functions. This is why the Bible compares the church to a body. The liver doesn't hear very well and the nose can't see. Why is that? Because they have different functions, and they weren't designed to do that. So I urge you to find out whatever your niche is in the kingdom of God, and then work at it with all your might. You might not be a warrior. You might not be front and center. It's not as great as you might think, by the way. But if you're keeping the supply lines going by praying faithfully, giving financially, and serving humbly, Like David, the captain of our souls will insist that you get the equal amount of the reward. That is simply God's economy. Now, David's going to establish a radical principle of equity here. We have learned that the exhausted men of the group have been given a job, and he manages to restore their dignity of those who have been left behind by pointing out that they, too, had a function in the army. They had watched over the baggage so that the, to enable the chase to proceed unhindered. But David insisted the spoils of the war, and here's the key, is what the Lord has given us. Their survival, their victory, it was all from the grace of God. Now, the dissenters saw it as the spoil that we recovered. Now, this was an expression of the understanding of life given to Israel from the beginning. They had been solemnly warned by Moses of the great danger of forgetting the Lord their God by thinking that they have accomplished something. This is Deuteronomy 8:17. Never say, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. It's only the grace of God. And to forget the grace of God is to forget God. After all, it was the Lord who gave them the victory. So nobody had the right to claim the spoils from themselves as the Lord owed it to no one. God was gracious and generous to deliver the enemy into their hands. And so 
they should be gracious and generous to share it with their brothers. Look, you don't have to be Billy Graham. You have to be you. But you need to aspire to be the best version of you that you can be. Notice it says David made this a law. This would make this the first legislation of King David. And you know what that legislation is? Essentially, it's this. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? David is a New Testament man in an Old Testament dispensation. Verse 26, please. Now, when David came to Ziklag, he sent some of the spoil of the elders of Judah to his friends, saying, Behold, a gift for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. To those who were in Bethel, to those who were in Ramoth of the Negev, to those who were in Jatir, to those who were in Aror, to those who were in Sifmoth, and to those who were in Eshema, I'll make these up, you won't know the difference. And to those who were in Rackle, and to those who were in the cities of Jer- that one, and then Toledo there at the bottom. Verse 30. And to those who were in Hormah, to those who were in Borshon, to those who were in Atok, and to those who were in Hebron, to all the places where David himself and his men were accustomed to go. Just a couple quick comments, and then we can go. Remember back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, God had warned the nation of Israel of what to expect if they asked for a human king. I'll read it to you. This is 1 Samuel 8.10. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked of him a king. He said, This will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your son and place them for himself in chariots and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties, and some to do his plowing and to reap his harvest and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards to give to his officers and to his servants. He will also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants. Then you will cry out in that day because of the king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. I ask you, if you would have heard that, would you have wanted a king? Why did the people say, no, but put a king over us? Now here, David was proven to be the very opposite of the king that Saul had become. Instead of a king who takes from the people, David is going to be a king who gives to the people. So I hope that you've learned today that in the kingdom of God, there are no big eyes and little U's. We are all important to what the Lord is doing. Let me close with a word from the ever-quotable Winston Churchill. Now, during World War II, England needed to increase its production of coal. And so Churchill called all the labor leaders together to enlist their support. And at the end of his presentation, he asked them to envision a parade which he knew would be held in Piccadilly Square after the war. First, he said, would come the sailors who have kept the vital sea lanes open. Then would come the soldiers who had come home from Dunkirk and then gone on to defeat Rommel in Africa. Then would come the pilots who had driven the Luftwaffe from the sky. Last of all, he said, would come a long line of sweat-stained, soot-streaked men in miners' caps. Someone would cry from the crowd, 
And where were you during the critical days of our struggle? And from 10,000 throats would come the answer, we were deep in the earth with our faces to the coal. Now, many of us are called to play very glamorous roles in the kingdom of God. For many of us, we had just have to keep our faces to the coal and do what the Lord has asked us to do. But everyone has a contribution to make, and every contribution is significant. Lord, burn that into our souls this morning. Lord, if there are ministries here, Father, that need to be birthed, I pray you would birth them. If there are those that lie dormant, Lord, I pray you would stir them up by your Holy Spirit. Give us all a heart to serve you solely for our love for you. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.